Welcome back to the program. For years now, Sir Ken Robinson has been tirelessly explaining that conformity in education does not work, that it is the enemy not only of creativity, but of an authentic life, that our goal is to find our place in our own story. But understanding the problem, even articulating it as brilliantly as Sir Ken Robinson does and has in his TED Talk, viewed by over 32 million people, his book, The Element, and his other writings and lectures, are only half the battle. The other half is to define and design the kind of 21st century schools that can achieve this. In his new work, Creative Schools, he argues for an end to our outmoded, industrialized educational system and proposes a highly personalized, organic approach that draws on today's technological and professional resources to engage all students, develop their innate curiosity and love of learning, and enable them to face the real challenges ahead and feel at home in the world they will inherit. It is my pleasure to welcome Sir Ken Robinson back to this program to talk about his new book, Creative Schools, The Grassroots Revolution That's Transforming Education. Sir Ken, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me back. Great to have you here. When we look at schools today, we see clearly an institution that that at their best and at their worst were fundamentally designed around kind of social engineering that was based on economic assumptions, class assumptions that were true in the Industrial Revolution. Do we need to truly redefine what the purpose of schools are today in the 21st century? Well, I think so. I mean, there are, there's a lot of talk these days about 21st century skills. Uh, actually, many of the skills that people think of as being unique to the 21st century skills have always needed. You know, the skills of collaboration, of, uh, you know, of bridging academic and vocational divides, of being able to live independently and find your way in the world, uh, skills of communication. But they're, they're becoming more and more important, I think, as the world gets more complicated, uh, as change accelerates. And in many ways, the current systems of education aren't designed fundamentally to, to meet these sorts of challenges. That's why I say we have to think very hard about transforming them, not just repairing them. And in fact, what is fundamentally different, though, is, is the way information is transmitted in the world today. There's a lot more knowledge, a lot more information, and it can't be the same formula that's just about open up your mind, cram it filled with information, and move on. Well, that's right. And I mean, I talk a lot about, I did, you know, in, not just in the TED Talks. It was interesting. Somebody said to me a while ago, they said, you've been at this a long time now, haven't you? I said, what's that? And they said, trying to change education. And he said, what is it, seven years now? I said, what do you mean, <laughs> seven years? He said, well, since that TED Talk. And I, I said, yes, but I was alive before that. You know, this was, <laughs> this was just a moment, really. And I, you know, I've been pushing for more personalized forms of education, as you said in the introduction, for a long time. And the reason is that, Education is about people. You know, parents are concerned about their children. Children are concerned about their lives. And uh, this isn't some process of mass production where people's feelings and talents are incidental. They're absolutely critical to how the system works and how I think how it should work. So, yes, I mean, there are, there are some perennial skills, but there's a new context. And I think it makes it even more important now that we should rethink the basic principles here and, and have much more personalized, more customized, and yes, more creative approaches to education. It also seems like it has to be a, an approach that is much more conducive to teaching and setting the stage for lifelong learning for exactly the reasons that we're talking about. Yes, uh, that's right. And um, I, I, I say somewhere in the book that 
you know, people sometimes think of education as a preparation for something that happens later on. And, of course, there's a sense in which education is, is a way of helping people you know, become uh, suited to the lives they, they may go on to lead. But it, it's wrong to think of it as just a preparation because it sounds like you're in dry dock you know, for the first 18 years of your life uh, you know, being assembled. And, and the fact is kids are alive now. They're living their lives at school. And what they become later on depends very much on the experiences they have during these first 18 years, the kind of education they have really matters and the, the ways in which they're helped or not to discover their real talents and their real interests. It's interesting that we talk so much about education reform today, and certainly there's, there's a lot of lip service paid to it, and I think that there's a lot of sincerity as part of the conversation. But so much of what passes for education reform is really rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Well, you know... Um I have a make a comparison in the book uh, between the attempts to improve education in the U.S. and as you know, I live here, so I haven't just popped over here to have a quick chat about American education. I've lived here now for 15 years, but I, I'm looking at in, at the into the early part of the book about how America has set about trying to transform its education system over the past 40 years. I mean, No Child Left Behind has been around since. 2000, 2001, but but it's it's it was its predecessor was the, the very influential report called A Nation at Risk, which came out uh, under the Reagan administration, and it was that that set off the alarm bell about falling standards and and how uh, that had to be repaired. And No Child Left Behind, in due course, introduced this whole program of standardized testing. So the American choice was to say that we improve education by standardizing it and testing and testing and testing. This, by the way, Jeff, as you probably know, it has now spawned a multi-billion dollar industry because No Child Left Behind set out the need for, for regular testing, but it didn't say how it was going to be done. That was left to commercial interests. And I was surprised to learn, as I guess people will be now to learn, that the testing industry is bigger than the NFL and it's bigger than Hollywood. It, uh, the NFL had annual revenues of about $9 billion in 2013. Hollywood, uh, the, the domestic cinema box office, was about an $11 billion business. Education testing and support is estimated to be a $16 billion business. It's massive. Um, and kids are spending a lot of the time in school now being tested, being getting prepared for tests, being tested, recovering from tests. And they're called high-stakes tests for a reason, which is that teachers' careers can depend on the outcome, school funding can depend on the outcome, whether kids progress to the next stage can depend on the outcome. A lot hinges on these tests. But the testing industry is not regulated at all. I mean, it's, it, the dog food industry has got more regulation than the testing industry. So that was the route America went down. And honestly, it simply hasn't worked. And it's had a few mild successes here and there, but the it, it scores in... in the areas being tested in reading and, in, and maths and science haven't really shifted in any dramatic way. I mean, could you imagine what you could do with the American education system if you spent 16 billion extra dollars a year improving it on facilities and teachers and programs and not testing? Meanwhile, uh, Finland uh, went the completely different direction over the past 40 years. They have no standardized testing. They devolve a lot of responsibility to schools, to teachers. They have a broad national curriculum lots of community engagement, not competition, but collaboration, and they outperform America on almost every measure. Uh, they, they, by doing actually the thing I'm recommending that schools should do in the book, 
giving responsibility to the schools to get the job done and to personalize it and engage students as individuals. One of the things that we often hear, though, when we talk about Finland or some smaller countries that are doing things certainly more effectively and with much greater success in terms of outcomes, is that we're trying to do it on a much larger scale and that there seems to be this inherent disconnect that people have, at least in their thinking, on how to do individualization and customization and do it to scale. Yes, it's, it, I, it's very interesting, this, isn't it? People often say you can't compare Finland to America. Well, in some ways, that, that's true. Um, and people often say, you know, as you say, it's a much bigger country. Well, Finland has a population of around 5 million, just a bit over now. But the thing is, in America, and it's exactly to your point, that, uh, that uh, the um, education, for the most part, is organized at the state level in America. And there are 30 states in America with populations equal to or smaller than Finland. I do a lot of work in Oklahoma. They have a population of around 3.5 million, much smaller than Finland. Vermont is about uh, or something under 2 million. Um, uh, I, I was saying this when I was in Wyoming recently. I think I was the only person there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know at, at the state level, things look dramatically different in terms of population, obviously. Uh, but then it's actually organized at the district level. But when it comes down to it, what really happens in education happens at the school level. And the same principles not only can be applied in American schools, they are being applied. Uh, the book is full of examples. It's not a theoretical book. It's a book of practice. It's a, I mean, you can theorize about it. But what I'm arguing is this isn't a theory. This is what works. We've had 10 years of relentless standardized testing. And it hasn't worked. It's time we gave up on the experiment and said, well, look, what does work? And what does work is schools being given more responsibility, training teachers well, supporting them well, having good professional development programs, forging links with the community, uh, looking hard at what children's own natural talents are, engaging them that way in part, and putting back the things that the standardized cultures has pushed out, things like proper recess, Play in elementary schools isn't some frivolous extra. It's how kids learn and stretch their limbs and, and test themselves against other people. Uh, putting arts programs back into school, sports programs back into school, they're all the things that contribute to real learning and the vitality and having more links between science and arts and technology, blurring the boundaries between disciplines. So we have dozens of examples in the book of schools that are doing this in, in America as well as elsewhere you know, within the current system. There's room for innovation as things are, but, of course, it would be very much better if policies encouraged this sort of innovation rather than discouraged it. You mentioned what, what I think is probably, the, and, and you write about, is the key word in all of this, which is culture. And the culture that is so inculcated, even within the most well-meaning people within the existing system. And, and how to change that culture seems to be the hardest part of the equation. Yes, you know, the, the, like, we're given a, one example that, that uh, we give in the book is of a school in um, Georgia called Smoky Road. Uh, it's a middle school, and for a long time it was a school that was not doing well at all. But a new principal came along. This was a school that you know, where test results were on the floor and there were high levels of disengagement and truancy from the school, lots of violence in the school parents didn't want their kids to go there and then the new principal came along dr laurie barron and we tell her story a bit in the book about how she said she spent the first year there 
actually put it, putting out fires, breaking up fights, jumping over desks, trying to stop people getting at each other, following up kids who weren't at school, excluding kids who were causing trouble at school, and said it clearly wasn't working. And they decided how to do something else. And so but something else was that they put together a plan with the school board and the, the, uh, the governors of the school and the, and the parents and the teachers to really get to know these kids and they worked hard to discover what their interests were i mean she said for one child it was music she loved to sing and uh, she wasn't getting much music so they they had a choir they put her in the choir and uh, it's a long story but she said her engagement shot through the roof she was she was given center stage her, her test results improved uh, there was another kid uh, this is just one, you know, two of many, but another one who who was really um, gifted in and obsessed with football, and that's what mattered to him. So she said, "We let him do more football. We encouraged him." And and over time, he said, "This lad who was just a statistic waiting to happen really flourished." And th- because the kids understood that if the school helped them do what mattered to the kids, then the kids would do what mattered to the school as well. And so a different partnership grew up. Anyway, over time. The school vastly improved uh, in on all, all fronts. Um, they had a different approach to teaching and learning, which is more collaborative, and, and also along the way, test results improved. Uh, Laurie Barron was finally recognised as the MetLife Middle School Teacher of the uh, Head Teacher of the Year, and she's now actually a superintendent and in schools. So, uh, what I'm saying is that this isn't a theory. There are lots of examples like this in the book of kids who are you know working together on project-based learning, working in the community, doing, uh, working in shop, you know, car engineering, as well as working in labs, doing theater productions. If you, if you revitalize the culture of education that way, culture is, uh, is really a way of talking about how people live together, how they work together. If you change the boundaries of the culture, if you revitalize it, that learning starts to flourish in, in a very different and more productive way. Don't we have to change the mindset that has been part of that culture for so long of, of the industrialized character of public education? Yes, I think so. And um, I mean, it, it's it's one thing you know, to, to say it's an industrial system, but it, but it it actually is in lots of respects. If you, if you look at how schools are organized, um, and, and incidentally, this is why I talk a lot about being able to innovate in the system as well as to the system as a whole. A lot of things that go on in schools aren't required by law. They're not required by No Child Left Behind or anybody else. They, they are habits that we've fallen into over time. For example, um, in middle and high schools, it tends to be the case, certainly in high schools, that we organize the day or schools organize the day around 40-minute bits of time. You know, so you have 40 minutes for this, and then you go to another room and do 40 minutes of that, and then you go somewhere else and do another 40 minutes. I'm saying, you know, that if you ran a business on that basis, you'd be bankrupt in a week. You know, if you had every member of your company stop what they were doing every 40 minutes and go to another room and do something else and you know, rinse and repeat eight times a day, they'd be so demoralized, you'd get nothing done. So there are rhythms in schools which have nothing to do with actual learning. You know, there's a big point for me that kids love to learn. Babies, you know, from the minute we're born, we have a voracious appetite. Look, look at how children learn to speak. We don't teach them to speak. They just learn how to do it. You couldn't teach them to speak. You wouldn't have the time and they wouldn't have the patience. You know, you don't sit them down after a couple of years and say, look, we need to talk. You know, <laughs> or, or more, more specifically, you do. And here's how it's going to work. You know, they learn it. Education is meant to help people learn, but often the structures and rhythms of schools prevent it. You know, we sit people in desks for hour after hour. We, we 
uh, we, we test them remorselessly. We break them open to bits and pieces and we don't engage with their own inner life. They're the things that actually are preoccupying them. And so when politicians say to me sometimes, so how, how do we solve the problems of school, like school violence, or how do we solve the dropout rates? I, I don't like the term dropout rate, you know, but, I mean, because it, it suggests that kids have failed. I think actually the system failed. Uh, you know, how do we get kids more engaged? Now, how do we solve these problems? And part of the answer in the book is, well, stop causing them. You know, <laughs> how about that? You know, don't do that. Don't, if you organize schools differently, if you empower people differently, if you engage parents in a different way, then the problem isn't so much solved as it disappears. You have a completely different way of, a different, a different culture. And I say it's not a theory. The book is full of examples of schools that are actually doing it. It's interesting. You talk about the need for, for localization and customization, as we've been talking about. Yeah. On the other hand, there is this focus on education and schools as kind of a national strategic priority. And in many ways, when you look at that, the, the comparisons with respect to PISA testing, you, you see a system that kind of is in conflict with itself in some ways. Well, it is a big, a big investment. There's no question about it. But one of the things that I say early on in the book is that, you know, when, when I was at school in the, in my, I was born in 1950, so I was at school from the late 50s to late 60s and I went to college. Uh, and I trained as a teacher. I mean, at that time, on the whole, national governments weren't much interested in what other countries were doing. When I was trained as a teacher, we had the occasional lecture on what were called comparative education. But that was hardly a cause for excitement. You know, <laughs> oh no, people in England didn't care much what was happening in Spain in in schools, and people in America weren't that that, that bothered about what was happening in Canada. <clears throat> you know, let alone in Finland. It was a domestic issue, but now it's not. And now it's become a strategic issue. People discuss their education policy, like their economic or the defense policies. And the reason is, as the world's become more globalized, countries at the national and state levels have recognized that education is a big driver of economic development, among other things. And it's why they've gone into this command and control mode. They've decided, I mean, for honorable enough reasons in some ways, that they need to... Uh, help to raise standards in schools. But the problem is not the the intention of, for example, no child left behind. It's the strategy. Uh, they they some politicians assume you can only do this by telling people what to do and uh, grabbing the reins and telling teachers what to teach and when and 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 then testing to make sure that they do that. And it, it doesn't work because it can't work. It's it education doesn't happen in the committee rooms of our state assemblies. It happens in actual classrooms, in schools, on playing fields, and, and you need to recognize that. So that's why I call this um, a grassroots movement, because if it doesn't happen among teachers and learners, then it's not happening. No matter what the data might say, it's simply not happening. And what's interesting to me is that uh, a lot of the countries that America is trying to now model itself on, like China and Singapore and South Korea, are actually moving away from this model. They're saying we need to help people to get more creative because they realize that testing in itself, rote learning in itself, doesn't produce the sort of achievements, the sort of students, the sort of fulfillment that really we all depend upon. You talk about when, when you went to school, Sir Ken, in many ways your attitudes and views grew out of your own personal experience because when you were in school in Liverpool, 
people saw things in you that were unique and that really helped guide you and, and direct you in many ways? Well, that's right. And, and I think it's, it's, it's evidence that people will find in their own lives. I mean, for example, I often ask people if they've got two children uh, and, and I make them a bet and I've never lost it. I never will. My bet is if you've got two children or more, or even if you've seen two children or more, <laughs> you know, I, I bet you they're completely different from each other. Of course they are. They're, we all are. We all have unique talents, unique interests, unique possibilities, and, uh, and unique opportunities. And that's it's why it's literally true to say that one size does not fit all in education. These principles of conformity and compliance and kind of market demand might work well for producing gadgets. They don't work at all well for educating living people. And people have only got to look at their own kids to realize that they are unsettled by being forced into a mold. I'm not talking about compliance as the opposite of... Uh, of um, I'm not talking about compliance as the opposite of disruption. I'm talking about compliance being a, an attempt to mold everyone to the same standard. So, yes, it's absolutely true. I mean, I grew up in Liverpool. I'm one of seven kids. And I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I, I wouldn't have had the life I've had, but for teachers that came into my life and, and other people. I mean, a, a school inspector who saw something in me and encouraged me and, and spoke to the school and thought I should be, be given more support than I was getting. I can remember half a dozen teachers who were absolute turning points in my life, lecturers I had at college without whom I, you know, I wouldn't have seen things that, in myself that they had seen. And I think most people looking back, I say you can think of your own children, but most people looking back to their own education will remember the teachers they had, the ones who turned them on, the ones who turned them off, the ones who discouraged them, the ones who encouraged them. Uh, It's a very personal business, and I think we have to just keep hanging on to that. It's like being a parent. You know, there are manuals and handbooks, but in the end it's about relationships. It's about raising people's game. It's about seeing potential in them and seeing them as, as human beings, not as data points and this whole attempt to raise standards in education uh, which along the way forgets there are people doing this that, that with biographies and circumstances is doomed to fail and it is failing uh, but the, it, the, the the truth of it is there's a different way to do it which doesn't fail which actually works and that's what the book sets out I, I look at teaching learning assessment curriculum and say look this is the stuff that's actually working if we all did that, like many schools are doing, and if they're encouraged to do it, not discouraged from doing it, then you know, the answer's in front of us. Truthfully, Jeff, you know, this isn't like cancer, honestly. Just saying, it's not like we don't know what the answer is here. We don't know what the solution is. We do know what the solution is. Uh, but it's, a, it's about, as you said earlier, it's, it's making it work on a, on a wide enough scale. And that doesn't mean standardizing. It means giving schools and teachers and parents the encouragement to find local solutions to their own very local circumstances, but within a national framework or a state framework of accountability. And that's what the book, you know, essay tries to set out. Is the other place we need to be looking at our schools of education and what they're turning out? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It has massive implications for teacher education. You see, I mean, I mentioned Finland, but I can mention other, other systems too. In many countries, to become a teacher is, is a real hurdle. You know, they... They look for people who've obviously, uh, they, it's important that people know their material, um, you know, that they, they understand what they're being required to teach, and that, that's important. 
But being a teacher is not just, you know, being a good language teacher isn't just about being able to speak the language. <laughs> being a teacher is about engaging people, inspiring them. It's about mentoring them and coaching them. That's what all good teaching involves. I have a whole chapter in the book on teaching. Uh, but if you look, for example, at a place like Singapore or Finland, uh, it's, it's, they set a high bar for you to become a teacher. But once you, you, you're in the profession, you're well compensated, you're supported with professional training programs. There are high expectations, but there's a high level of support as well. And what's happened in America, sadly, uh, over the, a number of years, is that the profession of teaching has become demeaned. I mean, increasingly, uh, teachers seem to be seen as people whose main job is to deliver state standards and administer tests. They've become seen almost as low-grade service workers, and then they get blamed for everything that goes wrong. And, you know, you can't improve education. You simply can't without improving the skill set and the motivation of teachers. It's often said, isn't it, that a good general never fires on his own troops. You know, you can't improve education without improving support for teachers. And, yes, that has big implications for who's accepted into the profession and also for how they're trained, both initially before they start teaching and subsequently during their career. So, yes, uh, I think that the book, I don't, we have a section on teacher education, but I point to a lot of other books in this book where people have gone into more detail about what that involves. But, yes, I, I hope this will be read widely in teacher education programs, too. I know a lot of people in these programs, and I know they, they'd be very receptive to the argument. And just in the couple of minutes we have left, what role does technology play in all of this? Well, technology has a big role to play it, in, in all sorts of respects. One of them is, see, one of the reasons that, that we have such a uniform way of organizing schools, it, by which I mean, the, the, you know, being creative means challenging some things you take for granted. And one of the things we take for granted in the culture of many schools is that we keep all kids together in the same age group. So, you know, all the eight-year-olds, all the nine-year-olds, all the ten-year-olds, they all go through the system chucking along at the same rate like they're on a conveyor belt. But what we know is that kids learn at different rates. They have different interests. Outside schools, people cross over ages quite readily. We don't segregate our family into age groups or the community. We just do it in schools. Uh, we organize blocks of time so we can shunt people around into different subject sessions and so on. Well, all that's a relic of the time when we, it, was, it was almost impossible to think differently about it. But now we have technology that can give almost every child in the school their own timetable, their own schedule. We can do it, whether we choose to. It's a different matter. Some schools do, by the way. Uh, they have a very flexible approach to scheduling. We have the technology to give people very personal profiles, much more informative, descriptive uh, process of assessment and evaluation. It gives you much more information about what kids have done and uh, more collaborative forms of assessment. So there are ways of making the cultures of, of schooling more fluid. But, of course, we also have tremendous tools for scientific research, for, uh, for artistic practices, for uh, work in the humanities, the, 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 the laptops and um, notebooks people have at their disposal now, the iPads and so on are fantastic tools, but they're only as good as the teachers who, and the students themselves who can use them and decide how to make these programs work best. But, you know, also, I do, I, say, I do see a big role for technology here. Kids learn voraciously outside of school using the technology. We should bring it in wholeheartedly. But there are all kinds of things you learn uh, without the technology. I mean, I, I think that, that 
the one of the reasons I don't want to argue for the end of schools is that there's a lot to be learned from being in the room with people. There are some things that we've forgotten about and we should remember, like the power of doing theatre together, like the power of, of doing dance, like the power of making music together, like the power of writing poetry, like the power of working collaboratively on a science project. So the technology is a big part of it, but it's not the whole of it. And I, I don't think that we should forget things we always knew about what made great schools great. Sir Ken Robinson, the book is Creative Schools, the grassroots revolution that's transforming education. Sir Ken, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. Right.